Well, like, uh, I say this in a very nice way. Like a lot of other obsessive subcultures, uh, dog show people are very obsessive about record keeping, luckily for us. Aw. <laughs> One sec, we got to take a diversion here. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, as you probably gathered from that clip, we visit with some dogs. The Westminster Kennel Club held its annual show this week. The Best in Show, by the way, went to a German short-haired pointer named CJ. Very handsome dog, if you haven't seen the pictures yet. Anyway, 538's Oliver Rader was in attendance, and he has been making the dog show his latest obsession. He wrote a big piece about it for the site this week, and he and I went and visited the Westminster show to talk about it. I promise there's a data angle here, but also, you know, either way, cute dogs. That's coming up in a minute, but first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week. It's the significant digit. Can I tell you a number? Sure. Um, so the number is 50 million, which is the number of people who visit MySpace every month. Really? <laughs> MySpace. You've heard of MySpace. I've heard of MySpace. When was I... the last time someone said MySpace in your company? Oh, God. Must have been 10 years ago. MySpace was popular when I was a teenager. And I, I mean, since Facebook popped up, it's kind of disappeared from public interest as far as I can tell. But not to 50 million people a month. Social media provides people a sense of community. If they get the sense of community that they're looking for from MySpace, there's no reason to leave it for something else. So that 50 million number caught our eye, but for a little more context on that and to talk about whether it's actually that surprising or what it means is uh, Leah Labresco, news writer for 538, who is in town. So we grabbed her and said, we got to do something because you're usually in D.C., but here you are in New York. So Leah, welcome back to What's the Point? Thanks, Jody. And I'll tell you, I did once have a MySpace account. I think we all did. And apparently 50 million people still check uh, every month. So I want to start with something that person I talked to on the street, Kira Howe, said, which is that, you know, we shouldn't like mock this number, even though that may be the first instinct, because when you find your community, you find your community. And if MySpace is still doing it for this many people, then there's no reason to not say this is a valid community. And whatever tool we're using now is probably going to be antiquated at some point as well, right? I mean, when you put it that way, Jody, I'm kind of jealous of the people who might find that MySpace is still working for them because I had a great hive mind of people on Google Reader. And when Google first killed the social functions and then Reader entirely, we never did manage to find another social network that substituted for a way to share and discuss content in the same way. And I guess that's part of the question here in this story, which is like MySpace is still hanging around and is still viable and, is that, and was actually recently purchased. So it's someone's out there still trying to make money off MySpace. Well, it was purchased, <laughs> but it was purchased more as part of a larger deal. Uh -huh. So it was purchased because Time bought a company called Viant, which happens to own MySpace as part of a lot of other things. But Time Inc. now technically owns MySpace? Technically owns MySpace. They can put it on their homepage and the 50 million people can see it. But it looks like it was more about acquiring this particular ad company, which happens to own MySpace, than about acquiring MySpace straight out. And this is an ad company that's really trying to target ads according to who's using a computer. 
often you'll find that your ads are targeted to you by cookies or anything else that kind of tells you what computer is being used. But if you share your computer with people in your family, then an advertiser won't know who they're targeting. So it's really the same kind of thing Netflix does for me and my mom when it has us make different profiles so it knows what to recommend to whom. And I guess a MySpace profile is linked to an actual person and we can identify who they are. Well, it doesn't have to be, actually. So MySpace doesn't have anything like Facebook's real name policy. So it's a little easier to use if you want to be anonymous. And all an advertiser cares about is that you know you tick whatever boxes of demographics. They don't care how real you are as a person. And actually, in terms of the anonymity of MySpace, I did see when I was trying to figure out who was still using MySpace, there was a 2014 report from the Urban Institute that said MySpace was growing more popular with sex workers as a way to reach clients without law enforcement being able to see their profile. Something like Backpage or Craigslist is accessible to anyone. Because law enforcement, MySpace is too small potatoes for law enforcement to care about? You have to already be friends with someone to see all the details of the, shall we say, menu of services that are available for sale. Versus on something like Craigslist, anyone visiting the site can see you and contact you. Okay, and just for context's sake, I don't think we can account for uh, the 50 million people using MySpace, though, as all sex workers, but that is an interesting little growing <laughs> yep. burgeoning community uh, that perhaps we'll keep our eye on. Okay, Leah Labresco, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jody. We are standing in Pier 94 uh, on the west side of Manhattan in this enormous room. And right now we're kind of strolling through. Hard to describe exactly what we're looking at here, but give it a shot. So to our right is the Hudson River. And to our left and in front of us, literally as far as my eye can see, are dogs and their people. And uh, yeah, people here are trimming their dogs. There's a lot of hairspray. There's a lot of nervous energy, and uh, these people are getting ready to uh, trot their dogs out into the show ring and uh, decide which is, you know, the highest expression of, of dogs in the city this weekend. Yeah, so, I mean, basically everyone has, like, a little cubby, and the dogs are sitting here in this staging area, and they're getting groomed and ready to go out. And so we're walking past row 13 and row 12 now, which has the Shiba Inus and the Cavalier King Charles Spaniels and the Chow Chows. Yeah, it looks, it looks like a giant purple and yellow filing cabinet for dogs. So when you said you were reporting on the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show and the idea of doing a podcast around this came up, I was game. But on the list of reasons for why I was game, it was like, I'll get to see some dogs. It's not that far from my house. I like talking to Ollie. But there wasn't an obvious, oh, this is a perfect topic for a data podcast. (laughs) So justify why we're here and why you're interested in this uh, as a 538 story. So I think this is a sporting event, right? If, if you'll grant it the label, this is the second longest continuously running sporting event in the U.S., second only to the Kentucky Derby. And just like any long-running sporting event, this has had uh, a dynasty, and that dynasty is Terriers. Uh, the Terrier group of breeds has won this show over and over and over and over again. And I wanted to dig into the data and the history and see why were they so successful 
and what has happened to them since. So the story has become the, the rise and fall of terrier breeds at Westminster. So we'll get to the fall in a minute, but in terms of the rise, I mean, put their dominance in context. I mean, is this like Jordan's Bulls or the... Oilers with Gretzky. I mean, how dominant have Terriers been historically? So th- this puts uh, this puts UCLA or the Bulls. Uh, it puts them all to shame. I think this, even compared to your most storied of sports dynasties, Terriers reign supreme. In, in the first half of the 20th century, there were 43 best in shows awarded. 29 of them went to Terriers. The first three best in shows awarded all went to the same Terrier. Uh, and if Terriers are the Yankees of Westminster, the Wire Fox Terrier is their Babe Ruth. That's a specific kind of Terrier? Yeah, that's a specific Terrier breed, which has won the most of any single breed at Westminster. It's won 14 best in shows out of about 100 that have been awarded, and that's out of about 200 breeds. One single breed has won 14, and in second place is another Terrier called the Scottish Terrier, the Scotty. They just, they're all over the leaderboard, and Terriers, for a long, long time, were very, very difficult uh, to beat here at Westminster. I think I have a sense of what a terrier looks like in my head, and I know it doesn't look like this little poofy thing that we're staring at right now. So there, there's a, a range of t- what terriers look like. There's about 30 breeds in the group, but actually compared to other breed groups, terriers are pretty homogenous. They tend to look um, pretty similar to one another, and, and terriers were bred for uh, hunting, rat hunting, badger hunting, so they're fairly small. People hunted rats? Well, uh, so as you know, for as long as people have lived in houses, uh, people have had dogs to catch rats. This That's is, pest control. That's not hunting. Well, I mean, I guess technically it's hunting. But. From the dog's point of view, it's hunting. Right? I guess so. so. This is why you know why my bodega has a cat. I don't like to think about it, but I'm glad the cat's there. Uh, so they're they're small. They're, they tend to be fairly low to the ground, uh, kind of long snouts and. Uh, the hair is, uh, the coat is actually very important, and that's, that's the most difficult part of terrier maintenance is having to sort of, you have to strip the coat by hand. It's very time intensive, but that's what's valued according to the powers that be at Westminster. So the coat uh, takes a lot of maintenance. But there's, you know, black, black and brown, white terriers, gray terriers. So, um, yeah, color-wise, kind of runs the gamut. You know, we love data sets. You talked about how this was a sport like any other, so it has its data set. Is the record keeping and the data around dog shows a pretty robust data set to dig into? Well, like, uh, I say this in a very nice way. Like a lot of other obsessive subcultures, uh, dog show people are very obsessive about record keeping, luckily for us. And uh, I used a couple main sources of data. So Westminster has kept amazing data going back over 100 years on dogs that have won, dogs that have won their breed, what dogs have competed for best in show, who the owners have been, who the judges have been, and so on. And that, you know, they use that data to sort of prove wow, terriers are really, really hard to beat at this show. And then the American Kennel Club, uh, of which Westminster is a member, um, keeps very detailed data on the popularity of dog breeds um, that um, purebred dog owners um, have registered with the American Kennel Club. So you can look back over the last 80 or 90 years at exactly what breeds were the most popular, and you can identify sort of ebbs and flows in in the popularity of various breeds. So I guess the natural question is... Why were terriers so dominant, at least in the first part of the last century? 
Well, the simplest explanation is they were just very, very popular. Um, so around the turn of the century, the, around 1900, um, they were sort of the dog of choice. And they were the dog of choice for a couple of reasons. Wait, you mean dog of choice for people who are showing them or dog of choice for all of us? So they were the popular dog among everyone. Aw. <laughs> One sec, we got to take a diversion here. doesn't like microphones. Do you know what kind of dog this is? Are these yours? They're Tibetan Terriers, which are from Tibet. They are not Terriers. They're part of the non-sporting group. We were just talking about how Terriers are dominant here, but these are so not Terriers. These are ter not Terriers. No, nope, they're part of the non-sporting group. They got the name because when they were discovered, they were the size of Terrier and they were from Tibet. So that's how they got the name. Uh, they're nice and shaggy and beautiful. Are they Are they all hyped up right now because that's just their disposition? No, not at all. They're a pretty calm dog. But as people walk up to their crates, who they don't know. And stick microphones in their crate. Exactly. I'm sorry. Have they gone yet? Have they showed yet? They showed at 1030 in Ring 4. So all done for the day. How'd they do? Great. Great. They're really cute. What are their names? Oh, Wesley and Jersey. Wesley and Jersey. Good names. <laughs> uh <laughs> we were in, in the middle of an answer there. Yeah, they were very popular. Yeah, so in order to understand their popularity in the U.S., you actually have to start in England. So around the turn of the, uh, around 1900, uh, terriers were very, very popular with the English working class. And as kind of show, showing dogs became more popular in the U.S., there was a really lucrative trade um, importing English terriers to, um, to the U.S., to the East Coast, mostly New York, Boston. And uh, these terriers, uh, the importers would buy these terriers from English working class people for very cheap, just buy them, you know, pluck them from the barnyard, and then they would come uh, here and sell them, you know, to sort of gilded age prices uh, in Manhattan where we're standing now. Give uh, them a haircut probably first. Yep, give them a haircut, uh, clean them up, and uh, yeah, sell them. And there a couple of these really prominent guys, um, George Thomas and Percy Roberts, made a living just going back and forth uh, between England and the uh, American East Coast. Uh, importing dogs, basically. And then uh, they became popular among uh, the dog showers, and I think I think that trickled down to, to a more uh, general public. But among the purebred show dog people, um, they became very, very popular. wonder if you think there's a tension in the fact that you talked about all the sort of rigorous record keeping and obviously this is an event where they're scoring right that with there's some some sort of data element there and trying to use objective measurements to to grade these dogs but then you also talk about how just like popularity plays such a big role popularity is bound to help right if you have enough sort of serious people breeding a lot of one type of show dog the odds that you're going to end up with something really special, a really, really special terrier that does well in the competition is higher. So it's no guarantee. You're saying it's just the numbers game. If there's that many people, then... I think that's a big part of it. Um, and then, you know, the judging here is, sure, it's meant to be objective. So the American Kennel Club publishes very, very detailed standards for every every breed. So, for instance, if you want to know what makes a good wire fox terrier, you go to the AKC's website and you'll find a very dense 
three or four page PDF outlining exactly what this dog should look like. So there are, you know, there are seemingly objective uh, standards being applied, but every breed and every group, and then ultimately best in show, is will just be judged by one single person, and that person might, you know, favor a certain type of breed or a certain type of group, and and they'll do their best to measure every individual dog against the breed sort of platonic ideal standard, but there, there's some subjectivity is going gonna, is gonna to come into this. Which makes it much more akin to, like, gymnastics or diving than to another sport, like basketball, where there's some sort of third-party scoring going on. Right, and, and maybe even a little more so, because in, in gymnastics you have, you know, you usually have a panel of judges, uh, but here uh, just in, in every ring there's just one, one arbiter um, uh, and, uh, who's, who has you know, all the power in, in his or her hands. So we talked about the rise, but of course, uh, no good piece would be worth telling without a fall. So how hard has the terrier fallen lately? So uh, there's a breed of terrier known as the Sealyham Terrier, very cute, white, little fluffy guy, and used to be very, very popular, top 10, top 20 popularity in this country. Uh, but a few years ago, a campaign was launched to actually save the Sealyham Terrier from extinction. It's fallen to the 150th most popular purebred dog in the country, something like that. So for some terrier breeds, it's, it's dire. And in fact, uh, a breed known as the White English Terrier actually has gone extinct. So for, they've fallen to a sort of existential crisis in some cases. And uh, the reason for that is, I think, sort of twofold. So these guys who are making a lot of money um, going back and forth to England in the early 20th century, uh, what happened there was basically the stock market crashed. So this really upset um, the sort of demand stateside. Uh, so, you know, if the stock market crashes, one of your the first things to go might be your show dog habit. Um, and then a few dec- decades later, the supply from England was affected. So these were a lot of working class people who were breeding these dogs as a hobby, maybe to make a little extra money. And sort of technological innovation happened. So sort of television was invented. There was radio to listen to. There were hobbies that were more enjoyable than uh, spending your time uh, taking care of terriers out, out near cold shed, uh, as I write in my story. So uh, you know, history rattled around, and, and these do- the, the dog supply was really affected. The fall has just affected all kinds of terrier breeds. So there's the, the Sealyham Terrier, which is on the verge of extinction. The Wire Fox Terrier has fallen. The Airedale Terrier, uh, the Scottish Terrier, the Irish Terrier, the Welsh Terrier, the Dandy Dinmont, the Standard Now Manchester, you're just showing off. The Kerry Blue. Uh, all of these dogs have fallen, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, How many 50. of these names did you know two weeks ago? Zero. Um, my, la- my, my la- the last two weeks, three weeks now of my life have been uh, completely obsessed with terriers. Um, so yeah, they've they've fallen um, in popularity. They haven't been winning at this Westminster show nearly as much, but uh, terrier people remain largely undeterred, and you know they they recognize the fact that these breeds aren't as popular and haven't won as much. Um, as they had before, but I think you know the attitude among terrier people is well. If if there's a good terrier in this show, it's still going to be tough to beat. You do write about how popularity within these sort of uh, purebred circles and popularity in the larger world don't always track, right? Like a golden retriever has never won 
the Westminster Kennel Club, right? That's right. And golden retrievers have been very, very high on the list um, of popularity in the U.S. They're actually one of just a handful of dogs that have ever held the number one spot. Um, and they have never won in 140 years or however long the show's been going on. They have never won a best in show. So there can be a disconnect between what's valued or, or what's awarded here at Westminster and what is sort of loved by uh, a lot of Americans as a pet. And what's your hunch as to why that is? Uh, I don't have a great uh, sense. I think, you know, I think their, ti- I think their time is due. I think uh, a big... I did too. I've got $1,000 riding on a Golden Trooper this year, so I hope that their time is due. But yeah. a, uh, a big favorite uh, here this year is the German Shepherd, which is you know, a very popular dog breed, which hasn't had a ton of success here. But there's a dog uh, named Rumor, which is meant to do really, really well this year. But yeah, I think it's about time uh, Retrievers took home some hardware. All right, let's go watch a little bit of, uh, of the show here. So we're, so we're standing by Ring 3 right now. Do you know what kind of dogs those are? No. Small, white. They're small, um, they're fluffy. Do you know what breed these are? Michelle, do you know what kind of dogs they are? Papillons. Papillons. Okay, so we're, Papillon. to- we're told they're papillons, which I now know are small and white and fluffy. But there are, uh, so there's, there's a number of them, there's like seven or eight of them being shown right now, walked around. So, like, what's the process of showing this and then what the the data collection, the scoring that goes into, you know, this process right here that we're watching. Right, so each dog uh, has a human handler, and uh, the handlers will walk the dog around the ring. There's a judge keeping a constant watchful eye on everything that's going on, so they'll they'll walk the dog around this you know, green carpeted ring, and the judge will keep an eye out for the dog's gait, and depending on the breed, the dog's temper- temperament can be extremely important. Uh, for instance, with terriers, the temperament is, is of the utmost importance. And because they tend to be skittish? or Well, ter- terriers are meant to be very confident, and uh, you have a lot of pluck and a lot of uh, hunter's instinct, um, so judges will be looking for that. Um, and a shy terrier is, is not a winning terrier. So terrier. That one looks like it's kind of just getting dragged around. I don't know. doesn't look too happy to be here. And, you know, after they're done walking around, um, uh, these dogs are so small, the judge will uh, have the handler put them up on a little table uh, at sort of proper judging level. And uh, depending on the breed, the judge looks at a number of things, eyes, ears, uh, teeth, coat is uh, very important, and just, you know, how the dog sort of comports uh, his or herself. The judge has a a really big uh, challenge, which they have to keep in mind, you know, minutia about seven dogs that, to me, look exactly the same and they'll they'll judge the dog against you know, the sort of dog's breed standard and eventually they will pick uh, a best of this papillon breed one thing i'm immediately noticing snacks everywhere these dogs get a snack after every walk yeah well i mean these are dogs jody they like treats just because they're just because they're at westminster doesn't mean they're above a treat and my favorite part of that, though, is that all the handlers are wearing suits, and their suit pockets are full of dog treats. A po- you can't wear a pocket square here because you got to reach in there and, and get out the kibble. In the politics world, we sometimes look at as a sort of interesting data set are the, the prediction markets, the betting markets, and that also exists for... Uh, for dog breeding as well, right? That's right. The uh, the Win Sportsbook in Las Vegas has put out uh, an odds sheet, uh, so you can bet. Uh, I think the favorite this year 
is the German Shepherd. I think you get four to one. Uh, the Sky Terrier um, is five to one. Uh, so that's uh, probably the Terrier's best hope this year is the Sky Terrier. Last year, a Sky Terrier named Charlie was runner-up. Charlie is back this year. Charlie is ready to go. And uh, also, uh, Purina, the dog food company, uh, has sort of put out a, a bracket challenge, like ESPN's NCAA brackets. If you pick every breed from all seven of the groups and the best in show that comes out of those seven, you are eligible to win one the million dog. dollars. You win the dog. Uh, you can buy the dog with the one million dollars. So I have entered, uh, and if I win, uh, Jody, I'm taking you out for a drink. Okay, more than more than one drink. But it does make you think that if there is money floating around, maybe not within this world, but you know, uh, you can bet on it in Vegas or whatever. Whenever there's that kind of financial incentive, that's often where the analytics and the advancements and the people trying to game it kind of start to float in. So I wonder if that will happen in this world. Right. And and lots and lots of people here at this show spend lots and lots of money taking care of their dogs, uh, hiring handlers, uh, going to breeders, um, you know, buying foundation stock if they, you know, they want to start their own kennel, breed their own dogs. So there's a lot of money floating around in this world and you know if analytics can can build a better dog then you know there may well be a future for that 538's ollie raider you can read his long piece about terriers on 538.com right now you can also see a few videos on the 538 facebook page What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. Our intern is Jonathan Yales. Joel Warner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can email me at podcasts at 538.com or find me on Twitter or Facebook. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. If you want to download the What's the Point theme song without me talking all over it, you can find a link to that on our website. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast app and give us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. And listen to 538's other podcasts, The Weekly Elections Show and our sports podcast, Hot Takedown. All of those are at 538.com slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you soon.